stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Gina Frangello, is the fiction editor for The Nervous Breakdown, Sunday editor for The Rumpus, a faculty member of UC Riverside Palm Desert's MFA program, and the longtime editor of Other Voices magazine and Other Voices books. She's the author of the short story collection Slut Lullabies and the novel My Sister's Continent, and is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest novel, a Life in Men from Algonquin Books. Welcome to Between the Covers, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. So at hearing the title, people <laughs> might be surprised to learn that A Life in Men is really, above all, a story of female friendship. Can you introduce us to the the two women that that dominate the narrative of A Life in Men? Yes, definitely. Um, it, it is interesting because the title became progressively more ironic the further I wrote. Um, the, the two women at the center of the book are Mary and Nix, who have been best friends since childhood and who take a trip together to Greece um, when they're about 20 that pretty much everything between them spirals out of control from that moment on. And Mary, uh, the rest of the narrative mainly follows Mary for the ensuing 13 years, nine countries, etc. She kind of wanders the globe, but also makes her peace in various ways with things about her past with Nick's. Um, yeah. And she, she mainly has male relationships in her adult years. Um, but largely because the absent presence of Nix and the shadow of Nix is so powerful that she doesn't tend to let any other women in in the way Nix was. So, well, it's interesting how they both use men in a way as a vehicle for expressing their love for each other in the choices that they, that they do. Sort of like the lo- the life not lived or the life mm-hmm. the life they hope for the other person. Yes, I should probably specify that Mary has cystic fibrosis, and um, so the trip that they originally take is supposed to be a big adventure that gets Mary out of suburban Ohio and away from her parents and doctors, and Nix has big plans of how this is going to be this wild adventure that introduces Mary to the wider world and, and divergenizes Mary, and, um, and yes, so that pretty much from the beginning... It starts out that they're using the idea of having an adventure with men as a way to bond with one another. Um, but, yeah, it goes many places from there. I love the the way at the beginning there's a lot of references to movies. And there's a sense of uh, the narrati- narrator being sort of having a, a free-moving uh, freestyle omniscience to it. In the set, almost like a director's crane, I felt right. like, at the beginning. And 
and uh, it creates this this sense of the story being told from above, and yet at the same time uh, an ability to be able to zoom in really quickly into a specific point of view. Yeah, I I mean, as you know, the the novel is narrated by Nix, but often in mostly in the third person. Um, and she gets into everybody's point of view. And so there's a particular reason, obviously, why that's possible. But, um, but yeah, I wanted the idea of the editorial omniscient, usually the voice is that of the author. And I wanted it to be a character in the book who had greater intimacy with some of the actual people in the book, um, for whom those people were real people in her life. I didn't want a sense of artificiality of like, and here are the people I created, sort of the way Milan Kundera does it, even though I love him, his work incredibly. Um, I wanted to do something a little more intimate. Well, it's funny that you mentioned him because I, in reading other interviews of you, a previous interviewer had asked, which famous fictional character is your kindred spirit? And you'd mentioned Sabine, Sabina from Unbearable Lightness of Being and described it as uh, wanting, you as wanting to live an independent artistic life, collecting experiences and lovers like a contemporary Anais Nin. And it feels a lot like that is something that crosses over with uh, the character Mary. I should definitely stipulate, lest I sound like a complete moron, that that was my goal at 19 or 20. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, I do not currently fancy myself some contemporary Anais Nin. Um, That that quote (laughs) comes from an interview where I was talking about, like, uh, Sabina had been a role model of mine when I was a young reader. Um, But yes, I mean, it is very much um, Nix's role model and kind of goal as well. I mean, I think there's even a line, I think Donnie's line is in there for Nix at that point in her life. Um, and when when Nix suddenly disappears from Mary's life very abruptly, Mary initially starts to try to live for the both of them, and she starts taking on goals that she saw Nix as having for her life. And some of those goals start to leak over and become Mary's. Well, speaking of living for someone else, I think Mary actually describes adulthood at one point as a house of mirrors. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of uh, these assumed identities, characters who are, are reinventing themselves and, and mm-hmm. uh, counter lives that they're creating. Right. Uh, t- tell us what fascinates you about that in in a life in men. I think I mean so many things. You know, I I've noticed that almost all my characters since I first started writing when I was you know well I've been writing my entire life, but my first short stories when I was in college that reinvention has always been somehow an emotional theme in my work. Um, And I think I just am fascinated by the idea that we're many different people over a lifetime and the way we constantly are re-spinning ourselves and and trying to become either closer to who we think we should be or sometimes further from who we thought we should be and therefore lived for other people. So, Well, there's this fascinating juxtaposition between, I mean, if you just look at what the book is about, it seems like it's, and it is, it's full of a lot of tragedy. There's terminal illness, there's uh, drug addiction, there's terrorism, there's sexual violence. But the actual experience of reading the book, it feels uh, like it's pulsing with life and with opportunity, uh, with an opportunity for transformation at any moment. And it, these characters are compelling, I think, partly because despite uh, all of these challenges and unexpected tragedies, they seem to find a way to rise above that circumstance and still have choice. Yeah, I mean that thank you first of all because that's a you know a beautiful reading that would be kind of my dream reading of the book. I mean that's exactly what I 
hoped people would feel reading it. I didn't want it to be some dark read, and yet there are. I mean, the main character has a life-shortening illness, and you know that from page one. So clearly, you know, between that and the fact that, you know, Lockerbie is in here, and, you know, as you said, there is there are violence, um, violent acts of various types that appear throughout the book. But I think that is exactly what I wanted to explore, is how do individuals who are sort of thrown into this larger world, you know, I mean, Mary and Nix don't have any direct relationship with any of the things that cause the violence, but, you know, they're sort of thrown around by it. But how does individual choice manifest um, on a, you know, when you're an individual on the global stage? You know, how do you continue to have control over your own destiny and your own perception, how you see your life, how you see choice, how you see transformation and connection. I think probably particularly individual connection and the how we give meaning to our own existence, you know, and marry someone who everyone had thought she would live on a very small canvas. And her efforts are mainly about living on a larger canvas. But when you leave your small canvas, it's also a lot less safe. And, you know, at times her actions may seem to be almost self-destructive. But in embracing choice and embracing the meaning of what she's looking for, she has to take certain risks. Let's let our listeners hear a little bit of the prose from A Life in Men. I'm going to start for right from the very beginning. It's a chapter that be, that is called Where Are We Going? Where Have We Been? And it takes place in Greece in 1988. Pretend I'm not already dead. That isn't important anyway. It's just that from here I can see everything. There we are, see? Or should I say there they are? Two girls sitting at a cafe off Taxi Square eating anchovies lined up in a small puddle of oil on a white plate. Both girls are obsessed with salt. Since arriving in Mykonos, they have ordered anchovies every day, lunch and dinner. As a result, they are constantly thirsty. They carry large bottles of water with them everywhere, written on in Greek lettering, the blue caps peeking out of the tops of their beach bags along with their rolled-up beach mats. The curly-haired blonde girl, Mary, jokes to the straight-haired blonde girl, Nix, that this influx of salt is going to be a turnoff should they pick up any hot men. Mary has cystic fibrosis, and sometimes one of the first clues parents get that their baby has CF is that the child's sweat is especially salty, so much so that the baby tastes like a pretzel on the parent's lips. Apparently, Mary's parents, who are not her biological parents, so this is particularly strange, share her affinity for salt, because no one noticed that Mary was an odd-tasting baby, and for this reason, along with a variety of other factors, like her ability, unusual in CF patients, to digest her food, the disease was not diagnosed until she was 17. Today, as they sit at the tiny sidewalk cafe, Mary places an anchovy on her long pink tongue and lets it lie there while she savors its taste. Several postcards lie strewn on the tabletop between them, and Nix picks one up without looking at the photo on the front. Hand trembling slightly from her caffeine and nicotine buzz, she begins doodling idly, sketching a box inside another box. Inside the outer box, Nix writes, Anonymously tragic story of terminal illness in boring Midwest. Then, inside the smaller inner box, she scribbles in tiny lettering. Glamorous story of young women on holiday in sunny Greece equals story suitable for chick flick. 
Who are you writing to? Mary asks, her hand reaching across the marble tabletop. But Nix withdraws the postcard quickly, abruptly aware that there is no one on earth to whom she could send such a card, except, of course, to Mary herself. She knows that if she showed her doodle to Mary, Mary would laugh. And yet Nix finds herself tucking the card back into her book inside her beach bag instead. Nobody, she says. We're talking today to Gina Frangello, the author of A Life in Men from Algonquin Books. Did you have to do a lot of research for the cystic yeah. fibrosis yes. part? I mean, you really go into detail, convincing detail of, of uh, what it means to, to be living with that condition. I did a lot of research, and I think that as with many things in, um, in writing, I learned a lot so that I could also learn where I wanted to depart. Um, I purposely gave Mary a very rare form of CF because I didn't want the book to make any attempt to be sort of like the embodiment of what it is to have CF or, you know, like sort of the spokesperson for CF. I don't have CF. And so it was really important to me that there also be some element of creative license. But I did a great deal of research and, and the research morphed over the years because it began really with like sort of medical reference books and things like that. And then as the internet just continued to explode, it really progressed to where I was reading much more personal things like people's blogs. And um, and so, you know, it, it was a, a wide array of research. Well, both in your dedications at the beginning and in the afterward to A Life in Men, you invite the question of autobiography and the ways in which this book does and doesn't overlap with your own um, personal experience. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you share in the book, in the afterward, and dedication and, and how that interplays and doesn't with how the, the narrative unfolds? Yes, mainly I, I talk about two things. Well, first of all, probably the main way in which the book is autobiographical um, has to do with place because all the places in the book that Mary lives and goes are places where I have lived or spent a great deal of time, um, sometimes quite literally, like Arthog House, the squat, the sort of one step above a squat she lives in in London is a place I lived uh, you know, the Latchmere pub where she bartends, I bartended. I mean, just the places are very literally factual. However, um, in the, in the essay after the book, I talk also about the fact that I lived with a woman who had cystic fibrosis in college, who was the original inspiration for my wanting to write about a character who was an avid traveler, who also had a, a pretty severe physical limitation. Um, and, health condition. And so she was a big inspiration. And then unfortunately, about one month after the book sold, um, my best girlfriend was diagnosed with stage 3C ovarian cancer, and she passed away within four months of that diagnosis. And so it was very strange in the sense that my own life began to mimic aspects of the book in terms of how we deal with the loss of a friend, how we deal with illness. Um, and all of those things that Mary and Nix both faced. And I would assume you dedicated the book to this friend who unexpectedly passed away, though the the friend themselves wasn't informed, their death wasn't informing the, the book. Exactly, correct. The book is duly dedicated to my friend who originally inspired the concept, um, but who basically nothing in the book is based on her life other than the fact that she was a traveler who had cystic fibrosis. Um, and the, it's duly dedicated to her and to my friend Kathy who passed away. Yeah. Well, one of the other interesting juxtapositions that I think really serves the book well is the book really is an intimate portrayal of of love and loss and friendship 
And yet, like you say, uh, it has a sort of an epic scope in terms of where it goes. Geographically speaking, we go to Kenya, to Morocco, to the Canary Islands, Greece, Amsterdam, England, United States. I'm sure I'm missing somewhere, <laughs> but but it, it's 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 this really intimate and interior thing that is happening across this large landscape. Right. Was right. that something that you knew you were going to write? Did you did you crave for that as you as you put the book together or did it happen as in the process of putting it? Together? I don't know that I would know how to write a book that wasn't pretty intimate. I mean, I I get very obsessively into the heads of my characters when I write about them. They seem a lot more real to me than the people in my actual life for a period of time. So, so I wasn't going in it with the idea that I wanted to try to be extremely interior. I think that's just the way I I write, but I was very interested in the concept of what it meant to live a deeply personal life on a, on a, on a large canvas, as I said before. And I think, for example, um, God, the end of, um, of the book, the white hotel, DM Thomas's the white hotel, um, where you've been sort of in this really deep psych, you know, psychoanalytic, very, personal drama with this woman and then at the very end of the book suddenly she is sort of um absorbed into just you know being one more person who's impacted by the holocaust and by concentration camps and and just the juxtaposition of sort of the way the global and the and we all experience our lives as so singular but we're all kind of on a swarming anthill and um and that juxtaposition is really interesting to me in books that I've read and I think I wanted to work with that here. Oh, that's really fascinating. And you it, you won a literary uh, scholarship that ended up changing part of the book yes. in terms of <laughs> Kenya becoming quite central and and even you pulling the book back from from submitting it to publishers. Yes, correct. Um, I had won the Summer Literary Seminars Contest and was sent to Kenya in 2010. Um, and I ended up staying, you're, you're sent over for two weeks for their seminars. And I stayed for a month. Um, and I basically just had such an intense sense the entire time I was there that Mary had been in Kenya and and how exactly it had impacted her and who she had been there with and how old she had been at the time and and you know what period of time it had been and all of that made no sense w- with regard to the current at that te- at that time timeline of the book it was impossible to just go home and sort of integrate it you know unobtrusively in. It really required rewriting the entire book and changing everything around. It really changed Mary's character a a lot as well. And in Kenya, you studied with Mary Gateskill, right? No, Mary Gateskill is the one who selected my story as the winner. Um, I I would have loved to study with Mary Gateskill as I worship her, but um, I studied with the also fabulous Teresa Voda. We're talking today with Gina Frangello, the author of A Life in Men from Algonquin Books. Well, speaking of Mary Gateskill, this book, like a lot of her writing, feels very sexual and feels uh, like there's a lot of sexual desire uh, and it feels very integrated into the world. I know a lot of writers have trepidation around around writing about sex because it can be done so poorly (laughs) and it stands out so horribly when it's done poorly. Mm -hmm. And yet it feels like you both excel at writing it and and that it is just part of the world of a life in men. Can can you talk about writing about sexuality if if there were people that you admire in 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 reading? Well, that? Gateskill's a big one. I mean, yeah. I love Gateskill. She was really formative to what I saw people 
being able to do in in their work when I was reading in my early 20s. Um, certainly Kundera, who's a very sexual writer, I mean, in a very, very different vein. But both of them, I think, you know, sex is simply part of both the interior and the social landscape for their characters in their books. Um, and probably for most of my favorite books and, and writers, it really is. I mean, I don't think of it as like, okay, now is the time to write a sex scene and this is the one place where the character will think about sex or, you know, will perceive desire. I mean, we all live lives where, you know, sexuality is a huge part of who everybody is. Um, even if it's thwarted sexuality, frustrated sexuality, inactive sexuality, it's simply part of the human psyche. And I've I think in some ways it's interesting because, of course, this is always pointed out to me that, you know, that my work is is sexual, although not always very explicit, but but sexual in, I think, a psychological sense. Um, And it's hard for me to even say why that is, because I guess I don't on some level understand why so many writers are have such cold feet about it. It's something that almost everyone's an authority on, really. You know, we don't have to read blogs and reference books to <laughs> write about right. sex, you know. Right. So. Yeah, and and it's refreshing to see it there, it's for me at least. Thank you. So uh, you also write about, you write from the point of view of men in this book yes. as well. more men than women, yes. And how, how was that for you? And how was it writing about from the point of view of men in general, and also how is it writing about from the point of view of men and their sexual desire? Um, well, I have written from the point of view of men before, although not dominantly. I mean, most of my point of view characters have been women. This was the first time that the male point of views actually outnumbered the female point of views. It was great. I mean, I... Um, like most writers, I love human psychology. I love hearing other people's stories. Um, many of my closest friends my entire life have always been men. Um, and I just think that it was really fascinating for me to have the opportunity to portray so many men in this because I think sometimes when a woman tries to write uh, a male point of view, it seems as though one man is somehow, you know, and this is what men are like, you know, and I did not want to do that. And so, you know, I had in the past, uh, in an unpublished novel, I had done sort of a, a she says, he says type of thing where it was, you know, the each, the man and the woman both had a first person point of view. And that to me felt as almost as though I was censoring myself, like every time he thought something, was my reader going to think that this is what I think every man thinks or something. And in this case, I was able to lose myself much more in, in the individual men and never think about that because there were so many of them that n- no one of them was supposed to embody anything more than himself. Yeah. And they were very different from each other right. for sure as, right. as a reader. Uh, th- can you tell us a little bit more about the title? Is it purely ironic or, um, the, or is there, are there some other... No, certainly. I mean, it's not purely ironic. I mean, Mary travels travels all over the world. Um, the, the book takes place in nine countries besides the United States. Um, and it, during each section of her life in each location, she is very impacted by a particular man. And they're not all lovers or anything like that. I mean, one is her brother, one is her biological father. Um, you know, some are friends, one is her husband, some are lovers. And so, you know, that is quite literal. I mean, she's very impacted by the really intimate 
array of, a re- of relationships she has with men in her life, and the geography and the relationships tended to overlap in ways that were interesting to me. So can you talk a little bit, Gina, about literary influences for you in general? I know in, in a previous interview you you pointed to E.L. Doctorow's Book of Daniel. I love that book. I'm obsessed with that book. I, I haven't read it, but I, I but, teach it constantly. I mean, you know, anyone who's interested in point of view, um, I mean, you want to read that book because it just makes your head explode and you're like, particularly if you're reading, I mean, it was written in the early 70s and I read it in the mid 90s. And so, I mean, I think in both of those cases, even more so than now, like I read it and my head just exploded. Like people were doing this in 1971. You know, he has a basic premise of a guy who is writing his doctoral thesis, but it's not really his thesis. It's the novel, but the narrator, which is him, you know, can continually shifts between first and third person. Um, and it's also just a volatile, really emotional, really raw book. Um, and so both in terms of the emotional energy which I was reading during a time in the 90s when I think like there was a lot of cool distance in many books. And um, and while some of it was intellectually fascinating, like I, I like a book that's hot. I like a book that's volatile. And, um, and so, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. Are there any other books that you went to in putting a life in men into, into being? Well, definitely. I mean, I, I reread a lot of Kandera before I started writing because I wanted to really think a lot about the editorial omniscient point of view, and I think he's really, you know, a modern master of it. Um, but ultimately, I didn't do much of what he did. It was just sort of uh, background. But, but you know, many books. I mean, while I was in Kenya, I was reading um, Francesca Marciano's um, Rules of the Wild, which is one of my favorite books. And I think the sensuality of that book and also the the intense loyalty between female friends um, and just the way we adjust to a, a landscape that isn't our own, that was a, a influence during the later parts of writing the book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Other Voices book, the books, the the press press that you're a longtime editor of? Yes. Um, I actually stepped down in September from Other Voices books, but Other Voices books is, uh, has been a great, um, vibrant indie press since 2005. It's now run by Dezank Books. Um mm-hmm. So it continues to survive, just not with me at the helm. But we have some, you know, some of my favorite writers. I've had the opportunity to work with people like Todd Goldberg and Rob Roberge and Zoe Zolbrod and Allison Amen, you know, just people who I had admired as a publisher of short fiction and had wanted to do books with them. And it's just really probably been the the ride of my professional life to do other voices books so, so what is next on your agenda what are your ah. what are your upcoming or current projects well i'm i'm mainly i'm most of the way through a first draft of a new novel called every kind of wanting and um i'm touring like a lunatic and you know i have the new teaching gig and i'm at the rumpus every sunday and curating fiction at the nervous breakdown and i have three kids all under high school age. So basically, if my head doesn't catch fire sometime really soon, that's where you can find me. <laughs> and can you tell us a little bit about your new your new book that you're working on and how like writing a life in men has has informed the choices you're making around the new one? Yes, definitely. Um, the new novel also has a, a 
a kind of editorial omniscient and roving panoramic point of view, but in a very different way. Um, and so I guess I'm continuing to play with that form. Um, you know, I'm sure that not every book I ever write is going to have a variation on that. But right now I seem to be pretty obsessed with it. It would be hard for me to go back to something like a, a close limited third or a first person narrative right now. I seem to be thinking, um, in this sort of panoramic way. Uh, the novel concerns, on the surface, the plot of the book is about um, a surrogacy, a gestational surrogacy, a, a gay couple and the uh, gestational surrogate who they work with to have their baby. But in reality, it spans 30 years. Part of it takes place in Venezuela. It's all about family secrets and, um, you know, who owns love. That sounds fantastic. Thanks for being on Between the Covers today. Thank you so much for having me. We were talking today with Gina Frangello, the author of A Life in Men from Algonquin Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.